Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. I am not Charles C.W. Cook. This is Kevin Williamson. Uh, been a while since Charlie and I have had an unscripted conversation, but Charles, I believe this is your, is this your 30th episode? It's the 30th episode, the big 3-0. The big 3-0. I kind of remember the big 3-0. I enjoyed that one a lot more than the big 5-0 this year. Yeah, I'm somewhere in between. Well, I'm closer to the big 3-0 than the big 5-0. I yeah, I know, no, no, no. But um, I'm feeling, uh, feeling elderly. Well, should we just pick up where we left off? Or? Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of which... Um, you know, every time we do something or there's a change, it's uh, there's always this weird kind of um, you know right wing criminology, especially where National Review stuff is uh, is uh, involved. So when I decided to uh, leave NR and go work for the uh, Dispatch, I put in my notice and was taking some vacation time. And during that time, my father passed away. So the last kind of uh, things I had planned to do at NR, like the last edition of the Tuesday and a farewell episode of Mad Dogs and Englishmen never actually happened. Um, so this apparently led some people to believe there was some sort of, you know, tantrum or, or rift or something like that. Not the case. Uh, anyway, glad to be talking again. How did you guys screw up Jacksonville so bad? You had the uh, biggest city in America with a Republican mayor. And as I understand, it, he just lost re-election. Yeah. So now Fort Worth's number one. Uh-huh. Well, Jacksonville's a strange city in one sense, and perhaps this is worth a quick exposition. As you may know, probably do know, given your interest in such things, there was a movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to extend the political authority of cities to the suburbs that had emerged outside of them. Mm -hmm. The theory being that it was a bit unfair that people who lived in the suburbs but worked in the city got to use all of the city's services and take advantage of its many charms, but then drive back into the suburbs and pay lower taxes and so forth. And a lot of cities in the mid-century period said, how about we take over the suburbs or the whole county even? And it failed almost everywhere, as you might imagine, except in Jacksonville, Florida, which is, with a couple of exceptions, Jacksonville Beach being one of them, essentially the same thing as Duval County, Florida. And that's why people will say to you that Jacksonville, Florida is the largest city by area in the United States. It's also why Jacksonville, which is actually a very small city city, has a million people in it, because actually it's Duval County that has most of the people in it rather than the city. Wasn't there a similar thing in Florida where they merged the county and the city and like abolished the city government and then renamed it? Something like that, maybe back in the 90s, where the city government was so dysfunctional? Yes. Well, anyway, Duval County is a strange county. It's a slightly Democratic-leaning swing county, and it has essentially followed the country in its voting habits since the 70s at least. Trump lost it in 2020. He won it in 2016. Barack Obama won it twice. George W. Bush won it twice. Bill Clinton won it twice. George H.W. Bush won it. Reagan won it. Reagan won it. And so on. And in terms of its mayors, it alternates. Now, I think the Republicans ran a candidate who was not as appealing uh, to moderates as the incumbent, Lenny Curry who was term limited, but it does move around. You know, the Republicans had been in for eight years. I I never really expected them to get a a third term. But, of course, Florida has moved so far toward the Republican side in other ways that I started to wonder. Yeah. So what were the uh, big issues in the race? Well, this is one of the interesting things. I saw a lot of Democrats celebrating, and I understand why, especially in Florida. But the candidate who won for them, Donna Deegan, is not the sort of Democrat that national Democrats would 
celebrate. She doesn't really believe in anything. And she says the right things. We'll do more affordable housing and we'll help people who are homeless and so forth. But, you know, this was a race about very little. The mistake the Republican made was that he forgot that he was running for the mayor of a city. And he talked a lot about national politics. Mm -hmm. And his tone was not the tone you need as a Republican to win over moderates in Duval County. So he didn't. So one of my you know, longstanding themes, and you and I've talked about this before, is that Republicans aren't very good with cities. And this increasingly is going to be a problem for them. So um, as mentioned before, Fort Worth is now, I guess, the biggest city in the country that's going to have a Republican mayor. Uh, her name is Maddie Parker. She's a pretty sensible, reasonably moderate uh, kind of person who's paid a lot of attention to how the garbage gets collected and, and that sort of thing. I interviewed her for a dispatch piece a few months ago. She was uh, she was an interesting conversation. Um, of course, biggest city in the country, biggest city in Texas as well. And people think of um, Texas as being this super, super conservative state, which in some ways it is. But the cities here are a lot like cities everywhere else. So Republicans do well in Texas, except for Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, El Paso, um, and, and basically you know every other city of any uh, any real consequence. Um, in uh, in bigger elections, in Fort Worth, as I noted, has as a Republican mayor. But um, I think when Cruz ran against Beto last time, the biggest city he won was was Lubbock, my hometown, uh, fewer than three hundred thousand people. So as the country and as Texas becomes more urban, and Texas is slightly more urban than the national average, uh, if you look at the density of population where most of the people live, um, some enormous share of the Texas population lives either east of I-35 or within a few miles of it. So it's that, you know, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas uh, kind, of, uh, kind of spread, and Houston, of course, being our biggest city. As Texas gets more urban, as the country gets more urban, if Republicans aren't able to change their um, declining appeal to people who live in those kinds of areas, it um, it spells you know the end of them electorally, and not just in cities, of course. But if you can't win in Texas, it's very difficult to win a presidential election, and so these things are going to have real important long-term consequences going forward. And I really, in many ways, just despair of the Republican Party's ability to turn itself around on this because the cities have become such a culture war hate totem for them that, um, you know, if you told a Republican, I mean, for instance, in Dallas, um, the Republicans didn't even run a, mayor, uh, a candidate in the mayor's election we just had. So the Democratic mayor there ran technically nonpartisan election, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, ran unopposed. And as I wrote in my piece about him, I don't think he's a terrible mayor, but I don't think anyone thinks he's so good that he deserved to be reelected just by acclamation. Well, with no with no opposition, Republicans didn't put up a candidate there. I don't think they put one up in Houston. Um, there was a Republican candidate in the San Antonio race, but he was a pretty minor figure who um, couldn't write an English sentence. And um, I think he got beat by 30 or 40 points or something like that. So, but if you ask them, you know, why don't you run in Austin? And they'll just kind of, <laughs> who wants to be in Austin? Well, people want to be in Austin who want to win elections where the people are and, and where the money is. Um, these two things, of course, go together for, for obvious reasons and in, in obvious kinds of ways. So if you end up being a party where, you know, your real population stronghold is Amarillo or someplace like that, you don't really have much of a future. And that's in Texas to say nothing of, you know, more moderate states. So if you are looking to fight this out in a state like, oh, Kansas, which is, uh, it's very Republican, but it's not very conservative in lots of ways. And um, it's not generally, uh, how to put it, it's not as reliable, I think, as, as Texas traditionally has been for, for Republicans at the state level and, and at the national level, um, at least not as strongly so. Instead of just holding these places in contempt and saying, well, they're, they're all the, um, you know, the um, sewers of civilization, we'd like to write them all off if we could, eventually you're writing off a majority of, of the country. 
There are things that Republicans have to say that would be of interest, I think, to people who live in cities because city problems are pretty much the same all over the country. Uh, they're the same in red states as they are in blue states, which is crime, uh, bad public schools, uh, recently, um, you know, housing prices. Although the housing stuff really bothers me. You know, we spent 40 years of federal policy trying to sustain and increase housing prices, and it worked. And now everyone's mad that housing's expensive. <laughs> Imagine that uh, when you have a, a whole federal government that's bent toward driving up housing prices, then um, surprise, it did something. It achieved a goal for a change. Um, the Republicans actually have a lot of useful stuff to say about this. You know, school choice actually is a really good policy. Uh, there are things that can be done uh, when it comes to crime. And there are things that can be done when it comes to housing. You know, Houston, of course, being the country's great example of that. Um, most people expect a city that has essentially no zoning laws to be, you know, some sort of unlivable uh, kind of third world hellhole. But it's a perfectly, you know, perfectly reasonable and nice and uh, livable city in lots of ways. Very hot, but um, can't zone that away. So Republicans have a lot of things they could be saying. And I say Republicans as a shorthand for, you know, people who are not orthodox progressives and um in hawk to the kind of um, reflexive sensibilities that govern big cities from Philadelphia to Los Angeles to New York to Boston to Houston. People who have alternatives to those views have a lot to offer voters who live in big cities, um, but the only vehicle they really have available to them, practically speaking, is the Republican Party. And the Republican Party ain't interested and isn't going to do the work. Yeah, and it ought to be noted that the opportunities for Republicans to run with a compelling message in the cities is greater than it has been for a long time. Yes. Because unfortunately, for the first time in a long time, crime is on the up. And even more unfortunately, many people within the Democratic Party, not everyone, but many people within the Democratic Party are ideologically committed to doing nothing about that crime or making it worse. One of the observations that I have made over and over again when talking to progressives about gun control, every time I get invited on a New York Times podcast to talk about gun control, where I know that I am speaking to people who don't agree with me, is that at the moment in the United States, we actually have a bipartisan consensus against enforcing laws regulating guns. The conservatives, will say openly up front, we don't want to pass more gun control laws. The progressives will say, we want to pass more gun control laws, but we don't really want to enforce them because it leads to mass incarceration or disparate outcomes or what you will. Now, that's an area that is probably not going to change. But the rest of the ideological predisposition that the left is exhibiting in cities such as Philadelphia, unfortunately New York, which was pretty well run for a long time, San Francisco, and elsewhere, is a massive opportunity for conservatives to say, you know what, we are against crime. We don't believe in all of these extravagant social theories that you are advancing. I don't know what you think about this, Kevin, but I think that crime is the one pre-political almost question in our national life. I don't think people will put up with it for too long. I think there is going to come a point, perhaps not in some cities, which do seem to me to be suicidal, but in most American cities where voters of all stripes say, I'm a single issue voter and it's all I care about. And at the moment, at least, Republicans have a great shot at being the ones standing there, putting their hands up, saying, hello, we know how to deal with this. If they don't do that, what happens? Well, what happens is that the Democrats, or at least the sensible people within the Democratic Party, start to win primaries, turn the cities around, and get the credit, which is great if you care about the outcomes, and I do, and that is the most important thing, but it's a massive missed opportunity if you're trying to build a Republican brand. Yeah, you know, you and I lived in New York at the same time, and uh, when we first started doing Mad Dogs and Englishmen, in fact, and um, we lived there at probably something close to the high water mark of New York's livability in its recent history, in its you know Giuliani and post Giuliani years history, and New York, when it's functioning, is 
very good place to live. Yes. It's a good place to do business. Um, there's a lot to recommend the city. You know, New York really has two things that it needs to function as a city, and they're separate issues, but they're related. Uh, one is that the subways have to work. Uh, you know, they have to be safe and usable and, uh, and semi on time. And that, of course, is a weird thing that's mostly run by the state. It's not something that, you know, a mayor or city council in New York can fix unilaterally. And then the other one is crime. You know, it has to have reasonably safe streets. Now, New York is still very safe by the standards of big American cities. Um, I want to say Dallas has four times the homicide rate of New York, something like that. Um, and Dallas is no, you know, St. Louis or, or New Orleans or something like that. But... You know, the fact that it's um, safer than Milwaukee is, 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 I think, cold comfort, but also the direction of movement, I think, really has a large effect on people. So even when New York was still a more dangerous city than, say, Dallas or Austin or someplace like that, when the crime rate was on its way down and it seemed like things were getting dealt with and fixed, that had a really positive impact on the city and uh, people's willingness to move there, their willingness to do business there. And that really, you know, changes the overall tenor of, of, of life there. Um, even though, you know, New York is still a safer city than Detroit or a lot of other places in the country, um, things are moving in the wrong way. And the psychology of things moving in the wrong way, I think, weighs very heavily upon people. So it would be good if they could um, get the direction right, if not um, the level where we would all like it, of course, which would be would be close to zero for that sort of thing. Um, you know, New York is a fairly simple city in some ways. You really only have the two things you have to fix because um, no one expects the schools to work in New York. I think people have just kind of forgotten about that. And, um, you know, the sort of people who are who are moving there um, for, for work and such are either going to be putting their kids in private schools or, or don't have children um, because they're younger or, uh, or there's people who don't have children. So it's in some ways easier to deal with a city like New York than it is to deal with a city like Atlanta, which has you know, a lot of separate issues, I think, that are in some ways more intractable. Like, um, you know, in Atlanta, traffic is a real issue. Now, traffic is terrible in New York, but it's not really an issue. It's just assumed. Uh, New York is going to be pretty much at a, uh, you know, gridlock standstill for most of the daylight hours and, and, and some of the non-daylight hours. Um, so in some ways, it is a, um, a city with, with fewer issues, but those are two really, really big ones that have to, uh, have to be dealt with. Um, Giuliani, before he became whatever it is he is now, um, <laughs> certainly oversaw and coincided with a great improvement in that. Um, there is, actually, I'd like to ask you about this and see what you think. You know, there is some debate about how much Giuliani's policies really are responsible for the turnaround in crime in New York, because although New York saw a very dramatic reduction uh, so did cities all over the country that weren't following similar policies and also cities in other countries. Um, so if you look, um, London had a very significant decrease in violent crime in the same years that New York did without adopting anything like similar sorts of uh, policies and also without the um, economic turnout, or turnaround that was going on in New York at the time, although London certainly did pretty well in the uh, late 90s and the, the turn of the century. So there were some... I guess, sort of organic changes in, uh, in city life that you see in U.S. cities and, and some European cities and British cities that resulted in lower crime during those years. But New York did see a, a more dramatic uh, decrease in most of those places. If you could figure out how to put in a bottle uh, whatever magic potion made that work, it would be something worth having. You know, I found it really odd last week a friend of my parents in England emailed me and asked for restaurant recommendations in New York. I found out when researching this that about half of the restaurants that I used to frequent closed during COVID. Of course, yeah. But at the end of her email, she said, now, is there anything that you would recommend in terms of safety? And I said, yeah, I wouldn't ride the subway. And it felt really nine millimeter with the spare magazine. <laughs> She's English, but it felt really odd to write that when I first moved to New York in 2011. 
most of my English friends, and to some extent my parents, because they hadn't spent too much time in New York, we used to go to California and Arizona, still had in their minds the New York of the late 80s and early 90s. And they kept saying to me, don't do this, don't ride the subway, don't go into Central Park, be careful when you're walking home, so on. And I would have to explain to them, no, it's really safe. It's safer than London, which it was. Then I became the editor, and I would hire people, not just full-time employees, but interns and so forth, and they would ask me the same question. Maybe they were from Wisconsin or Montana or somewhere, and they didn't know what New York was like, and they would say, I hear New York's very dangerous. You know, how should I behave? I said, you know what? You could walk around the streets with a brand new iPad held up in the air, And you could shout, look at my lovely new iPad, and you'd be safe. There was a point at which it was just so safe that the answer was always the same. Don't worry about that. Now, of course, there are some areas you go too far, you will get yourself into trouble. But not Manhattan. Not most of Brooklyn. But I wrote her that piece of advice, and I meant it. I wouldn't ride the subway because I just keep seeing these stories and I keep being told by people who've lived in New York for 30 years, I don't go on the subway anymore because it's messy and it's full of homeless people and it's full of drug addicts and it's getting violent. Uh, The number of incidents down there has increased. And I find it almost unforgivable that New York has done that to itself. I think we do have to blame voters to an extent. This is not something that just happened to them. Yes, there are cyclical trends. Yes, there are other causes of crime beyond public policy. I understand all that. But they did have it down. They elected Giuliani. They put in their reforms. Then they gave Michael Bloomberg, who's not a man I like generally, three terms. He did a good job with it. And then they decided to go in the other direction. And now they're doing something that they didn't even do under de Blasio, which is choosing people as their prosecutors and elected law enforcement representatives who have all sorts of weird ideas about crime that are making the city worse. And New York didn't do that after the 90s. It had learned that lesson and now it's forgotten it. All right, I have a question for you. Um, This is going to really put you on the spot, I think. You can only save one, New York City or the state of California. I'm saving the state of California because it's so big and pretty. Okay. Um, I, I, I thought you would agonize over that a little bit more. No, obviously, I'm, I'm a save California first uh, kind of person. But um, That's well. not because I'm anti-New York. I love New York. I just have so much... I have so much affinity for California, and I I spent a lot of time there as a kid. I have great memories. And also, it's so different depending on where you go. San Francisco is different than Los Angeles. It's different than Big Sur. It's different than San Francisco. You go all the way up. It's just there's so much there. Speaking of city stuff, were we we libertarian types wrong about uh, marijuana? Depends what you mean. Go on. You know, so uh, I wrote a big piece for National Review a few years ago about Denver and Denver's legalization uh, efforts in Colorado in general. And uh, my argument then, as now, is that it's always going to be a matter of trade-offs. You're never going to get the, um, you know, happy libertarian utopia in which this ceases to be a problem simply because it's legal and because you can can buy it in licensed dispensaries and and that sort of thing. Although, as I understand it in New York, it's just... um, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty lawless. The uh, the way the market's working there, but um, did we miscalculate the trade offs and um, and how heavy the negative consequences were going to be? That there would be so much marijuana use in public um, that it would become, you know, just that that smell would become just part of the fabric of urban life. That there would be, and maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, I probably need to do some reading, but the uh, the mental health uh, consequences of widespread marijuana use, at least for some subpopulations, seems to have been more serious than the, certainly I expected, and I think a lot of other uh, pro-legalization people expected. Um, but our, our, our math always told us that it would be um, not a perfect trade-off, but 
but on balance worth it. And I think there may be some people who are starting to reconsider that and think that maybe the trade-off hasn't been worth it. So I think yes and no, and that the trade-off is worth it, but that the status quo is not necessarily how it should end up. So I think I like the fact that we aren't putting people in prison for possessing and using marijuana. I think I don't like the widespread public use of marijuana in part because it yields that smell everywhere. But I think that one can take a broadly libertarian approach to marijuana without requiring the legalization of its use on the street. It's not legal in New York or most cities, for that matter, to walk around with an open container. And if we had similar laws for marijuana, I would now be interested in them, having spent time in New York and getting sick of that smell. I mean, this is a very weird thing to me that progressives seem to have this schizophrenic view on smokable materials. (laughs) If the city smelled of tobacco in the way that it smells of marijuana, they'd shut it down. But with marijuana, it's supposedly fine. And I'm not quite sure why. Why is that? Yeah, you and think about the very short turnaround culturally of vaping. Like in the very, very early days of vaping, it was um, uh, you know, seen as kind of an acceptable alternative and preferable to cigarette smoking. And then like overnight, vaping became this kind of lower class, uh, white trash, regrettable thing that needed to be um, regulated out of existence. I don't see that happening with uh, with marijuana, although I do. I think there's some some observational evidence that um, particularly among more educated and upper class people, the um, smoking a joint way of consuming marijuana is being displaced by other less combustible uh, methods of of marijuana consumption, you know, edibles and tinctures and and various uh, things. And do you think it is inconsistent that you cannot drink on the street in most major cities, but that you can smoke weed? Because I hadn't really thought about that until you said it, but it is, isn't it? Well, I don't mind inconsistency. Um, inconsistency is, you know, part of the sort of normal organic development of, um, of social life. Um, but you well, don't look at New York City and say, well, because you're not allowed to walk around with your drink in a solo cup, the city is therefore unfree. Well, no, I don't, I don't think that. Um, we do have laws against public drunkenness. And um, thank God those aren't too, too heavily. But we also have laws against public drinking in most cities. I mean, yeah, in Jacksonville, for example, it is illegal to walk around with a drink unless it's game day. And then there's an exception. <laughs> unless it's game day. God bless America. <laughs> yeah. So it was in New Orleans. You could for a while yes. walk around with a drink. You still can. You still can. Um, and a few other places. Um, and again, it doesn't. Um, it, it really depends, I think, more on the local culture of the place. But um, you know, uh, our, our National Review friend Theodore Dalrymple once had a an interesting sentence. He said, "You know, the last time I saw a drunk person in France was in 1998. The last <laughs> time I saw a drunk person in England was the last time I was in England." <laughs> and uh, the sort of drinking culture, I think, really uh, really matters. Um, But I'm just trying to think through what it is that we're wondering in that I have heard people say that because of the smell on the street, because how widespread it is, because of the mental health issues you've described, they have reconsidered their support for the decriminalization of marijuana per se. But I'm wondering if it needs that drastic a reconsideration or whether we ought to just bring it into line with the way we treat other substances that are not illegal. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, and here's a, here's a non-libertarian sentiment for you. I think what we really need here is more corporate authoritarianism. <laughs> what do you mean? Let me tell you what I mean by that. So um, when I was in Denver and writing about Colorado, I got the feeling that Denver's marijuana business was a little like the early days of gambling in Las Vegas, when it still was essentially a mob business. You know, it was legal. It was a legitimate business. It was out in the daylight, um, but it was still essentially run by the mafia. 
And Vegas got really cleaned up when, you know, the big entertainment and hospitality corporations moved in there and started setting up shop because, you know, the mafia thought they were tough until they, they met Walt Disney. And uh, the mafia was not as tough as, as, as some of those companies um, that, that made big investments in, in Vegas are. And so I kind of think in a sense that um, a marijuana business that was dominated by, oh, you know, something that looks like, I don't know, Amazon of, you know, sort of big corporate producers, providers, distributors, and uh, interacting with a consumer culture that's a little less street oriented and a little more um, private, I suppose, would produce a very different set of outcomes. Now, that being said, um, you know, there are some places that have a, an alcohol culture that fits um, with what you would want out of an orderly urban life. And that's the, the point of bringing up the example of, of France. But, um, you know, also in places like Germany and Switzerland, um, unless you're going to soccer games and such, you don't really see a lot of drunk people um, on the streets. Oddly enough, you don't in Nevada either around Las Vegas, except for the, the strip itself and, and the areas where there are casinos. If you're out in Henderson or someplace like that, you don't see uh, a lot of public drunkenness. Um, but I don't know that there's a version of marijuana culture that's like that. Um, I suppose maybe in, in places like Amsterdam where you had a really kind of you know, buttoned down and enclosed version where people, you know, only were openly using marijuana in the coffee houses and certain, you know, licensed and regulated places. It wasn't, um, at least the last time I was there, something that was um, a widespread invasive street level phenomenon. And um, so maybe it's more of a, a question of culture than it is a question of regulatory model. I mean, one of the reasons that I don't do it is that although I have no problem getting drunk, you can't really have a joint in the way you can have one glass of wine. I've never in my life seen you have one glass of wine, Charlie. Well, that's true. That's why I preface that by saying <laughs> I have no problem with getting drunk. But yeah. you can have one glass of wine. And, and in theory, contrary yeah. to rumor, I have, in fact, done this before, especially if I have to drive. Yeah, I can go out and I can have one glass of wine and I can be the designated driver and then I can take everyone else home. But you can't really do that with marijuana. So it is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I, I guess with most of these issues, it's um, it's a matter of how we live more than a matter of, of exactly what our laws are like. Um, although maybe I'll write a piece at some point reconsidering some of this. I mean, I still look at it basically fundamentally from a rights point of view that, you know, grownups have a right to do what they want with their bodies and themselves. Um, obviously that is subject to certain kinds of limitations when it comes to, um, how that affects public life. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, if there were, um, if marijuana legalization had meant that you can, you know, buy marijuana discreetly from, uh, someplace that looks like a Whole Foods and then take it home and use it and, you know, watch, uh, cartoon reruns until three in the morning and, uh, then go to sleep. I'd probably be happier with that than I am with where we are now. Florida's treatment of marijuana is just fundamentally dishonest, but oddly enough, it might appeal to some people in that if I could use firearms analogies, given that this is a conversation between the two of us, mm. some states have decriminalized marijuana completely. They have what you would call constitutional carry of marijuana. <laughs> Florida has may issue marijuana. What they did was to allow people who have a marijuana card to buy it from licensed vendors and then to make the process of getting that card not guaranteed but likely. Yeah. So if you want to smoke marijuana in Florida, and I know people who do, it's pretty easy. You just go to a doctor and you say, I suffer from headaches or what you will. And I think marijuana would be the way to fix this. And the doctor says, that's very interesting. Here's my signature. And then you can get it. Yeah. When I was first in Nevada, they had just medical marijuana. You know, you'd get off the uh, plane at the airport and the first billboard you saw would say, you know, 
call Dr. Weed and we'll get you, it actually was called Dr. Weed and uh, we'll get you your prescription set up. And as I understand it, it took about, you know, 30 minutes from getting off the airport to, uh, to getting yourself licensed to uh, consume uh, marijuana in, uh, in, in Nevada. I've always hated the, uh, the medical marijuana thing because that is such a, uh, you know, hypocritical and um, dishonest way of going about it. I think, yeah, full, um, Consumer legalization is a more is a more honest model, certainly. All right. Well, what else is going on, Kevin? Uh, I don't know. You got any? Uh, you got any summer travel plans? Are you going anywhere? Yes. Where are you going? Yes, I'm going to Italy. And oh, nice. Then tacking on a little England trip to the end of it to see my parents with the kids. Where Where in Italy will you be going? So we're starting off in Rome, and then we're going to Tuscany for a week. Oh, very, very nice. That was roughly our, our honeymoon, at least part of it. Have you That's been, you, you've, you've surely been to Rome before. I have, although I haven't been to Rome since 1997. So you were like three. <laughs> I was 12. Okay, whatever. Close enough. Um, let's see. And in Tuscany, are you doing like the, are you renting a villa out in the countryside sort of thing? Yes. Or? That's right. That's that right. is going to be awesome. You're going to love that. Uh, oddly enough, we'll be in, in Italy at, at one point this summer as well. I'll uh, I'll talk to you offline and see if our time's going to uh, overlap. And if so, maybe we'll uh, find a way to get together. Um, why Italy? Besides the fact that it's just beautiful and awesome and lovely. Well, my wife's family has ties to Italy. In fact, my wife's late grandmother was just a first-generation immigrant. She came off the boat uh, when... Mussolini came to power. They said, nope. And they left and arrived in New York. Uh, so they have Italian connections. You know, you know my... Italian connections great, is a funny thing to say. Yeah, it sounds like they're in the mafia. <laughs> my great country is France. So what France is to me, Italy is to them. And uh, I'm excited because I have tended to default to France. The last time I was in Italy was 2006. And before that, as I say, I went in 1997 hmm. for a month. We went around the whole country. This was a, I'm, I'm going to prove myself to be a stereotype. This is very on brand. My school put on a one month long summer trip run by the Latin department called In the Footsteps of Hannibal. <laughs> We went around pretty much the whole country on a bus. Did you Rome. start Carthage? <laughs> we went everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And it was led by a teacher, my Latin teacher, Mr. Sayer, who gave the most terrific explanations everywhere we went of the history and culture and language. And... Uh, it was such a good trip that, and it was so comprehensive that we didn't go back for a while because we felt, well, we've seen so much of Italy and it's going to be hard to to top that. So I'm really excited because I've really only been three times, once on a skiing trip when I was 11, once on that trip, and then once with my parents in 2006. Yeah. Rome is one of those cities that is not overrated. Um, you can spend a lot of time there and, uh, and not wear it out. I, um, I love it. It's one of my, uh, one of my favorite places in the world. I'm very excited. Yeah. Anything uh, Anything else? Let's see. Well, I hope that the global economy isn't going to crash while I'm away, this debt ceiling fight. The one place you don't want to be if the global economy crashes is Italy. Really? Why? Well, I don't think they'd handle it very well. <laughs> used to it life just goes on there right it's like, <laughs> probably it's, it's like probably greece, already like that like, yeah. you know greece's economy has contracted by 40 percent, and there's 65 percent inflation everyone's like yeah whatever yeah. another another retina yeah life just uh, life just kind of goes on have you been doing any uh, shooting or hunting i haven't you know i have really let that slide a bit i've, I've, got, so I've got a new busy. challenge for you by the way because so a few years ago was it a might have been at Hillsdale, where you and I were on the same skeet shooting course within a couple of weeks of each other. That's right. And uh, we were, you know, there's there's an element of competition there, I think. And uh, anyway, new challenge for you. You should try this if you can. Uh, get yourself a revolver that shoots uh, four ten shells, like a forty five long, and try skeet shooting with a handgun. It's a hoot. So, what are the shells like? What do you mean? 
they're, they're like more like shotgun shells. They, they are shotgun shells. They so are shotgun shells. A forty five. So that'd be pretty hard if they were bullets. Yeah. Okay, so it's just skeet shooting, but with a revolver that you put shells in, and the shells are the have little ball bearings in them, and they just yeah, you use uh, use like you know clay shooting uh, shot. You should try it. It's um it's hard, but it's uh, it's fun. How much harder is it than a shotgun? Um. <sighs> Twice as hard, roughly, I'd say. So uh-huh. I'm not a I'm not a great sort of skeet or clay shooter for whatever reason. Maybe it's you know vision or lack of hand eye coordination or or whatever. I'm okay at it and I like doing it, but um, it's a, it's a lot harder with a handgun. Hmm, I bet. I bet. The you, only time I've ever seen look someone at you, but it's that's all right. I'm used to that part. <laughs> the only time I've ever seen anyone shoot a shell out of a revolver was when I was in California in the mountains and the people i was staying with said shh and they said it's a rattlesnake and he went over to this closet and he pulled out this gun and he walked outside and waited and he shot this snake with this shot and i guess killed it but i've never seen that anywhere else yeah, snake shot is a uh, is a thing. Uh, you, you usually keep uh, something with that on for camping trips in, you know, West Texas particularly, where we've got a lot of uh, rattlesnakes and um, other um, poisonous critters of that sort. What can a rattlesnake do to you? Well, if they bite you, um, it's a, it's a pretty serious poison. You can die from it and die relatively quickly. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, most people don't because I mean, if you if you can get medical attention, you can. Uh, typically counteract it pretty easily and pretty quickly, but um, it's not always the case that people are able to do that. Uh, well, we were up in the mountains, and this was the sort of place, and I loved it for this reason, that hadn't really fundamentally changed since the Wild West. Oh, yeah. The buildings were wood, the roads were unpaved, and when we went to the local bar, the floor was covered in sawdust and the guy behind the bar had a revolver on his hip in California as well. It's not normal. <laughs> it's not where I used to go. California. Where, where was that? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It was sort of halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco, a little bit into the interior, but it was beautiful there. And it was remote. And I suspect that if they had been, bitten by the rattlesnake they might have been among the people who would have struggled to get prompt medical attention i see um i suppose we should talk about some actual politics politics before we uh, before we wrap things up um you want to update us on your uh, on your boy desantis well i think he's scheduled to announce on wednesday that's the rumor your friends at disney gave him a great big old middle finger to welcome him to the race yeah, so actually, I think they did, but I think they're lying. As you know, I've been critical of DeSantis on this. Yeah, I yeah. think he got it wrong. But that investment, that billion dollars they've supposedly pulled out because of DeSantis, has not been pulled out because of DeSantis. It's been pulled because Bob Iger, the new and former CEO, hated the project, the Lake Nonna project, it's called, right from the beginning. He wanted to cancel it the moment he took over from JPEG. And Disney isn't doing that great. I mean, Disney Plus is not making money. They're losing subscribers. Disney's movies have flopped repeatedly. And Disney World, unlike Disneyland in California, is down Hmm. in attendance. So, you know, if you really look at what they said, they made a big deal of that because they knew everyone would repeat it and say this is DeSantis. But they also announced a $17.9 billion investment in the Florida park at the same time. I see so I'm I'm skeptical of that particular story, even as someone who is primed to believe it, because I think DeSantis got this wrong. Yeah, and even in Florida, where the economy is doing well, maybe office space isn't the world's most obvious investment right now. No, no, that's right. That's yeah. right. And that, look, a lot of those people in California didn't want to move. It was unpopular among the people it was supposed to shift over. So around February 2021, did you think Trump would be top of the polls at this time? No, I didn't think it would be this bad. Did you? <laughs> no. Um, it's rare that, man, I where I'm too optimistic. Um, 
this is um, this is not typically the uh, disease that I suffer from. But yeah, I kind of thought he would fade and be be a, a bad memory, mostly by this point, or at worst, just kind of a persistent social media troll of some kind. But um, damn, this guy might get the nomination again. Might very well be reelected. Yes, and yes, I thought, especially after DeSantis won by twenty points. Yeah. That the momentum was in the other direction. You still feel a citizenship decision? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I always wanted to be an American, and this country is not <laughs> defined by the people who lead it. But goodness me, you know, I went back for my mother's birthday to England a month ago. It was a surprise. She didn't know I was coming till I showed up at the door. And she didn't know about the surprise party we were throwing her that evening. Either. I was sat at that dinner with one of my parents' friends. And usually, when people say to me, relatively politely, America, a bit crazy, right? I say, well, no. You know, I don't think the First Amendment is crazy. I don't think low taxes are crazy. I don't think the federal system is crazy. I don't think the Second Amendment is crazy either. So, usually, I say, well, I just don't agree with that. And it's polite and we all move on. But this guy said to me, he said, you know, there's 330 million people in America. We're not really going to get another election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, are we? That's crazy. And I said, yep, that is. That is crazy. I could not agree with him more. How could this possibly be the most likely outcome? Yeah, you know, every time I, um, I have to fill out that ATF form when you buy a gun and you get to the question that says, have you renounced your U.S. citizenship? I always think to myself, not yet. Uh, I'm not doing that. Never, <laughs> no, never. No, you went through. Uh, you know, I was I was born with it, so I can afford to be uh, cavalier about it. You actually had to to put in some work to acquire it. Oh, I was oh, thinking. Sorry. You know, earlier I meant to say this. You were talking about you know, New York being safe when you when you first got there. But when you first got there, you had the safest commute in the world because you were like sleeping under your desk at National Review, so you didn't actually have to get out on the street. Just had to stand up. Maybe go and yeah. get coffee. Maybe go and get coffee. Yeah. How long did that last, by the way? I can't remember. Just a couple of weeks? No, it was about two weeks, yeah. And before anyone thinks I was too gross, I did ask people if I could go borrow their apartment to shower in. And I was doing CNN at the time because it was during Occupy Wall Street. And oh, yeah, if right. you ask nicely at TV studios, they often do have a shower. And you don't have to explain why. You just say, is there any chance I could use your shower? And they say, fine. <laughs> I didn't say because I'm sleeping under my desk. I thought the chance of getting booked again would be <laughs> limited by that admission. Yeah, an intern's life, man. It's, uh, it's not, not all it's cracked up to be. So do we think DeSantis is kind of solidly second place unless he does something yes. really dumb between now and the next couple of weeks? Or Yes. I and think it's going to be Trump or DeSantis. I think DeSantis has a good shot. I think Trump is the favorite, alas, and... I just worry that there is this distortion field around Trump that makes any prediction or augury you might make irrelevant. But at the same time, there has to come a point. At some point, it will happen that people get tired of him, surely. And maybe it will be now rather than in five years. You know, when I wrote the uh, case against Trump in 2016, it was like... uh you know, it was like a 50-page pamphlet, something like that. If I write it again this time around, it's going to be like 800 pages, Charles. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be volumes. I'm going to be, like, uh, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm writing The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's going to be just books and books and books and books that nobody wants to read. I mean, if he were to win and then win the presidency, he would have been the main character within my professional life for 13 years by the end of it. So, a big, big chunk of your professional life. Yeah, almost all of it. Yeah, terrifying. So, yeah, I have to think it's the Trump-DeSantis race, I guess, because really, I guess, Pence is, is number three, and it ain't going to be Pence. I think that's right, and I don't think Tim Scott will get traction, although he should. Yeah. And the rest, there are some of them that I like, but... No, they just don't have the profile. I mean, D Doug Burgum in North Dakota is a really good governor, but most people heard his name for the first time yesterday when he said I might run. So. 
Yeah, you know, being a really good governor of Florida actually isn't something that presages a lot of hope for a presidential campaign. Jeb Bush was a good governor of Florida. Uh, Rick Scott was a really good governor of Florida. Um, I, as my listeners know, think that Jeb Bush was the best governor in the history of Florida. Hmm. Is that a high bar? Well, probably not at the time. (laughs) Now, though, we have had some good governors. But he was the guy who made modern Florida. What How Florida so? is... Make, make the case for him in, in 90 seconds. Well, until Jeb was elected, only two Republicans outside of Reconstruction, when it was mandatory, had ever been elected. One of them was a Democrat-turned-Republican who only ran as a Republican because one of the big issues was the death penalty. The other one lost in disgrace after his first term. Jeb came along, and he turned Florida into a modern state. He got rid of or bypassed a lot of the old boy network. He made it an attractive place for people to move in by making sure that the income tax was not only illegal, but that it was not applied to capital gains or real estate investments or dividends or anything like that. He barred affirmative action. He canceled useless railroad projects that were over budget. He championed school choice and turned the education system around here so that it's now top 10 for K through 12 and number one in public higher education and the 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 things that are now autopilot for republican governors of florida were largely championed by jeb that would almost be a good place to drop it off and maybe we shouldn't uh, (laughs) maybe we shouldn't do it just uh just do it quite then all right that's a pretty good case um so why didn't jeb do better just because too much time had elapsed between his governorship and the time he was running for president yeah, and also and his last name was name. Yeah, his last name was Bush. George W. Bush had taken the party to really low ebbs. And I think Jeb was out of step with the party on the number one animating issue of about 2015, which was immigration. Yeah. Which you don't have to worry about as governor. At least not to a great extent. You got people like Charlie Cook showing up in your state, you're gonna think twice about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that probably does it for a podcast. We will not do the aforereferenced uh, leave people hanging ending, but good talking to you. Happy 30th podcast. And we'll have to do this again sometime soon. By the way, do you like how I come to your podcast and act like I'm in charge of it? I do. I do. You did the intro and the outro. And now I don't have to.